piece. I did want to touch on it because if you're ultra conservative on every single lever, you'll never win a deal ever. <laughs> so that's what you're balancing. That was Josh Eidingen, managing partner of DXC Properties. Stay tuned to learn more about how size does matter. The limited partner shares in the potentially outsized returns of a well-planned and executed investment, but as a passive investor and has the maximum leverage on their most precious asset, their time. And that is why we're here together. 90% of the millionaires out there built their net worth with real estate. However, 0% of the billionaires are hands-on managing the real estate assets because there simply isn't enough time. My name is Jake Wiley, and for the past 16 years, I've been investing in real estate, and I've learned a thing or two. But the most important lesson is how to leverage the expertise and time of others to maximize your investment potential. Welcome to the Limited Partner Podcast. All right, welcome, partners. This is another exciting week. This week, I've got Josh Eidingon. So he's the managing partner at DXC Part Part Properties. I'm sorry. Josh, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Josh, I'm really excited to get into this conversation, but I would love to kind of set the table for our listeners about you, kind of how you started and how you got to where you are today. If you wouldn't mind, give us a little bit of background on yourself. Sure, I'd love to. Thanks again for having me. I started in real estate back in 2013. I met people very organically through a local New York-based, a local Long Island networking event and a series of events. And ended up connecting with a property manager out in, in the Midwest in Cincinnati. He sort of dragged me into my first deal. Believe it or not, still living at home, I was paying my dad $300 a month in rent to rent my own bedroom to encourage me to get out of there. And, and I bought my first, I syndicated it, my first 20 unit deal in Cincinnati, $175,000 was that deal. And, you know, I think I ran into all sorts of headaches and did a bunch of things wrong, but that's where I jumped in, learned, and was really hooked on real estate. After doing that, I was tried to do a deal a year or so, but very quickly made the commitment to transition and learn more about real estate. So I, I left my job at a, it was like a software research company. And went over to work as an analyst for an investment group that bought multifamily across the Southeast. And while I was there for about five years, I transitioned to an acquisitions role and was ultimately leading the acquisitions team to where we bought a few hundred million dollars worth of real estate in the Southeast. After being there for five years, I left that company to start DXE Properties with my partner. And really, we leveraged a lot of that experience and those connections from my prior role to be able to start DXE. We found, you know, I think a bunch of compelling deals because I could cite, you know, my previous experience and how we transacted. And I had that relationship to make that step in a little bit easier. So since starting DXE, my partner and I, Donato, we bought a little over a hundred million dollars worth of existing real estate. And we currently have over a hundred million dollars worth of real estate under development. We are mostly located in the Southeast, although we are doing our, we have a development in Seattle and we've done some local development as well, New York based. So that's the abridged version of my backstory, but happy to dig into any of the points, Jake. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, it's a great story. So I do want to dig in on that point. So the first deal you did was 20 units, you syndicated it. And it was only $175,000. Yes. I would say short sale through a bank where four of the 20 units were occupied. No one was paying. It needed about another $175,000 worth of work to just be functional. The prior owner bought it, I think in 2008, right at the peak. And then uh, obviously crash happened. And then it was just going through a, 
call it a drawn out foreclosure process. And my property manager was able to insert me and I somehow raised money to be able to get that deal done because I didn't have much of my own at the time. I mean, I think that's such a cool story. You know, you just don't see unit prices like that anymore. Oh, that's for sure. It's a different world. So how did it turn out? Do you still have it or? No, no. It ended up being almost a, I think we held it for 14 months, 15 months, not a good location at all. So it was really just a get in there, stabilize the property as best as we could and flip out of it. So after, yeah, 15 months or so, sold it for, I think it was a little over $500,000. And I was like, oh my God, this is like the best business in the world. What could possibly go wrong? So I think uh, at the time, maybe young enough and dumb enough to not realize sort of the risks associated with it. I I mean, raising money has its own series of risks, but in a lot of those cases, it was taking five and $10,000 investments with people investing in me because it's, you know, it's my first deal. I don't have anything to cite in terms of history or why I should be able to succeed doing this. Well, I really like that story. And I think there's a lesson in there that I've learned the hard way too, is that especially when you first get started in real estate, most people don't go for the 20 units. They just go for the single family and, and swing. But there's a lot of times you're drawn to the deal that you can uh, quote unquote afford, but it might not be the best deal, right? Because it's like, yeah, I could probably scrape up enough cash for that. And there's probably a reason for that. <laughs> and I, I can tell you that I've had more than my fair share of properties that like looking back and it's like, you know, we always did fine on our investments. We always paid all our investors back, but there's a handful that I wish I'd never owned. Yeah, I could tell you, we feel the exact same way. Like we've done, it's really, a lot of it's now scale and location oriented. Like now we're, we would never buy a deal in like that northern mediocre suburb of Cincinnati that's just nice and rough. I think especially now, this market, this environment, you're so exposed doing those types of deals. But two, it's size and scale. Like we quickly learned, like we're not the best operators of a 30, 40 unit deal, even if it's very well located. We need some efficiencies associated with like being able to staff some of these multifamily deals. Well, let's dig into that because I think that's really important, right? I've also been through this as well is that there are certain thresholds where you can put somebody on site and there's certain thresholds where it makes sense to have another property manager. And then there's like below that you end up as the owner doing all of those things. But I'd love to get your take on, you know, what have you learned in that process and what, what kind of deal size makes sense and where do you get those economies of scale? Right. So at a bare minimum, we need to see, I'll call it 60, but it's really more like 80 units. And at that level, you can typically afford to have at least one full-time maintenance person and a full-time leasing office manager type of role. And lower than that, you typically cannot really afford that within your financials and to be able to compete and win it at a number that, that makes sense. So at that lower unit count, 30, 40, 50 units, you're often hiring a property manager that's going to be doing what's called scattered site property management. So they may have, you know, four maintenance people, four leasing people under staff, and they'll bounce around across their 30, 40 different deals. And just if something's available, they'll try to lease it. If there's a call for a a sewer backup or, or whatever it is, a maintenance request, they'll go to tend to that. But we ha- we just feel like, f- firstly, there's is so much inefficiency associated with that pro- that structure to begin with. You're driving around, you're not there. And more importantly, I think it's accountability. As having your own direct employees or re- employees that are only responsible for your property, 
you're much directly able to identify if someone's doing a good or bad job versus if they're spread too thin and not getting the same attention. And it allows you to sort of build that relationship and I think motivate them a little bit more. And I know those are all like not really quantifiable things, but we've found that to make an enormous difference. And it's something that we make a point to really do. I think there's a few levels of efficiency that you'll hit. Like that 70 or 80 unit is the bare minimum to get the one-on-one, but you also, you hit a even greater efficiency beyond that. I'd say 200 units is even better. One-on-one to us is our minimum. And I think like, particularly for our deals, we found a little bit of what we consider like a, a sweet spot, we call it, in that none, most institutional buyers aren't touching these like one-on-one type deals, 100 units, 120 units, 140 units. They want a little more scale and they want to deploy more money and be in the most efficient possible asset. We think you can get, still get a little bit of a discount just as a on a price point basis, on a cap rate basis, and with some additional effort, be able to operate with very comparable. So if, if you're listening, Josh has made really two great points that I just kind of want to reiterate here is that, you know, number one is that if you're looking in a deal with a potential sponsor, and it's 50 units or below 60, you know, your point is 80. There are some issues that are going to come with property managing that property because it doesn't have somebody on site, doesn't have a maintenance person, doesn't have a leasing person likely. And if they do, you probably got to question how good a job they're doing or what they're doing all day. And then the other one is kind of focusing more on the upside, top side of the deal. And that is institutional investors want to write bigger checks right? And they want to put bigger money into it, but they, you know, so there, there's kind of this gap between kind of what's small and then what they want to, what they where they want to get into, which is somewhere in this hundred doors. And that is a real opportunity kind of in this space to play where you're not competing with, you know, the big dogs and you're also not, you know, kind of running around in, in the bottom bracket here too, and in dealing with those costs. Josh, did I get that right? It's complete, completely accurate. And I'm a big believer in it. I think, you know, part of it depends on where you're located also in terms of how many of those opportunities exist. As an example, if you're focused on investing in Florida, you want to be in Florida, anything that's newer vintage because land costs are much higher than they are in, say, Georgia, you know, broadly speaking, you have to build at such great scale that there's very few like 120 unit deals that were built in the last 10 years. Whereas in, in Georgia, you could be in like the suburbs of Atlanta or even Charleston, for example, you could be in some of the, you know, call it suburban areas that are, that you don't have to have such great density and it could still pencil. So, you know, you may, depending on the profile and what you're looking for and risk threshold and vintage of deals that you want to be in, the market sometimes will dictate some of those opportunities for what you can invest in, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. I guess let's talk about some mistakes that you've seen folks make, right? If you're investing in a deal, one, it could be from the sponsor side and or um, the limited partner side. Yeah. So and I've invested as a limited partner as well, um, even though I'm a sponsor and I always invest in my own deals. I started off after doing that first 20 unit deal, investing in a few deals as a limited partner that I just believed in and made sense. And it just gave me exposure to opportunities that I would not otherwise see. In terms of mistakes, and Jake, we talked about it right before getting online here. You know, the market in the last 10 years has only gone up. So it's washed away a lot of mistakes that, that a lot of people have potentially made. You know, where I think I'm most cautious and I think that 
I could see many mistakes, I'll call it happening, is going into deals with too lean a renovation budget or assuming that you could capitalize improvements out of cash flow. I think that could be a very big mistake. I think that people that assume that can happen can expose themselves if they're not call it expecting to bring more capital to the deal. That I think is the biggest. I think it's a reason why my partner and I have lost, DXZ's lost out on a lot of deals because we always do want to capitalize these projects up front. If we want to do $2 million in renovations, we want to have $2 million in the bank day one. And the negative to that is effectively you have some stale money that's on the side and sitting, you know, to be deployed over the next 12, 18, 24 months as you want to make these renovations and turn and improve units. But the alternative would be pulling for money that you don't know is there or tapping into future money that you're not sure that you could tap into. So that's what I see as like where sponsors may be exposing them in a way that you know, I would call it is higher risk than what we're comfortable doing. And I really like the point that you're making there and that when we talk about being conservative in some of the estimates in the plan for how you're going to really run the property right through the life cycle. If there is a significant portion of the investment thesis that's built on renovations, CapEx improvements, value add, and you're not seeing that penciled into the deal from the start, like where's it going to come from? And we all know that like cost of things are rising, labor costs, material costs, it's really risky. So it's a great point to call out to say, like, if you are looking at a deal as a limited partner and you're looking at the pro forma and how this thing is going to work, and you're saying that it's a significant value at property, but you don't see a lot of capital reserve. It's like, here's the purchase price, you know, here's a small cash reserve. And then we're going to do $2 million worth of renovations. It's like, where's the $2 million coming from? And I think that's a great question to ask. And there may be a plan for that. But I mean, to your point is that you don't know what the market's going to look like, but if you have the capital committed up front and you're ready to go, like you can execute on that plan. But you know, the market is so topsy-turvy right now that if you're hoping that you can pull that money or raise it or get debt for it in the future, like that might not be possible. Totally agree. I think like if I'm a limited part, it's very tough to be a, a limited partner and we're, you know, our business is built on them. But I think if you don't have, and Jake, you've done a lot of deals and you've been in this business for a while. So I you know, you learn a lot along the way. But if I'm a limited partner that's maybe just getting started, there's probably three points of the deal that I'm really honing in on. One's just that, CapEx, renovation, sort of stressing those numbers in what's a very inflationary environment and costs are going up. And you want to feel good about that bucket being comfortable. Two is exit cap. So, you know, the, basically your valuation metric for how you're exiting the deal with rates going up, I think you especially want to be comfortable with the percentage that's being used for the exit cap. And then three, rent growth that we've been able to underwrite, we as me as a sponsor and the sponsors like me, a lot of rent growth over the last really 10 years, but even the last four and five, three, four years have been super high rent growth. You know, at some point that has to curtail and slow down. So really feeling comfortable about the rent growth, being able to you know, look at competitive properties, see what rents they're getting. And it really is as simple as that. That's what we're comparing to and adjusting for based on our offering or future offering. So th those would be the three, call it what I think are the most critical levers of every deal for whether they work or don't work if you're an LP looking to invest. Let's dig in on the cap rates, the exit cap for a second, because I think that's a 
that's one that might need just a little bit more fleshing out. You know, we're at historically low cap rates, right? Which has a historically like large impact and an increase in the valuation of the property. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've got rent growth coupled, you know, high rent growth coupled on top of that, which is kind of like double compounding, right? It's okay. We've got good rent growth and we've got low cap rate. Where do you see, what are you thinking for exit cap rates? How are you counseling your investors on exit cap rates and how you guys are looking at that? So it's difficult. Obviously every market is different from a cap rate perspective. So you're Jake, I know you're in Charleston, nice and low cap rate environment, or just as a market, it seems to have like a, an extra low premium for just the Charleston effect. I don't know exactly why, but we are right now typically underwriting to exit caps still in the fives, which is for well-located called Southeast multifamily real estate, 80s and newer vintage. I think pretty, you know, it's a meaningful expansion from where we are today when deals are trading in the upper threes and low fours. You know, that said, we don't know where rates are going to go. I think there's a very good chance that they'll continue to rise. The Fed's certainly saying that they are going to keep increasing rates, at least until they get inflation down to, I think they set a 2% target and historical quote-unquote norms. But I think what we're importantly underwriting to alongside the exit cap is just break-even occupancy and what's our yield at the end of the day with fixed debt, where we could, if we feel really good that if we could operate at, call it, low 80s, mid 80s percent occupancy as our break even, that we're in a very comfortable place. If Even if in- inflation takes off, rates continue to increase. But if we have locked in fixed debt at, call it 5% today, and we could cover all expenses, that's very comfortable in the low to mid 80s. And if we're able to cash flow, alternatively, if we're fully stabilized, operating at 95%, it can cash flow 7, 8%, but aren't forced into a sale for any reason, to us, that's very comfortable. So we're looking at a number of different levers while still trying to compete. And candidly, we have not competed that well in the last three months, just with the recent rate shakeup. Yeah. And I really want to ask you about like the whole competition thing, right? Because when you are looking at a deal and you're saying, I can you know, pencil this thing in with a 80% occupancy, low 80s, you know, you're looking at it very conservatively. And when you look at cap rates and exit cap rates that are in the fives and the current market somewhere in the threes, you know, again, you're very conservative. So from a competitive nature, it's, I can imagine it would be tough. And I think you just alluded to that. And then I think it's really the question of what should we be looking out for? Right. Because like I am concerned as a limited partner of all the guys that are not being conservative and saying like, Hey, we're going to run this deal based on kind of very similar to market conditions today. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's now is an extremely difficult time for deals to pencil. And, you know, I'll answer your question in a second, but I want to touch on the competitive piece because ultimately, you know, very rarely are you winning a deal in a bubble where you're the only person seeing it and you can name your price and you're going to get the deal. There's typically, even if it's off market, somewhat of a competitive atmosphere. So you always have to be under, if you're going to win that deal, you have to underwrite and assume something different from how the next guy is looking at it. I would say that we've typically, we've won deals in the past by making the assumption that we could spend a little bit more money and make the product a little bit better and push rents a little bit further than the next guy. That's how I think we've separated ourselves for the deals that we have won in the past and not necessarily 
on just assuming there'll be a lot of market rent growth or a lot of, or a very low exit cap. Just so just on the competitive, on the competitive piece, I did want to touch on it because if you're ultra conservative on every single lever, you'll never win a deal ever. So that's what you're balancing. And then in terms of look to look out for, I, you know, I think in addition to the three points that I made, I'm just exit cap, trying to have some expansion, a comfortable reno budget, and then just rent growth versus comps. I think it's the, the team behind you that you're investing in, who that sponsor is, their track record, and just your comfort with them. I think unless you're a very experienced LP, you're investing in that team and that individual individuals behind the deal as much as the deal. So I think vetting and getting to know that person for when things are bad is just as important for like, as when things are good. Yeah. You really, you nailed my question, right? Because I think what I was trying to get to is how do you win and still be conservative? And it's all about having a great business plan, right? And you have to have, you have to have a vision you have to see things differently than everybody else in a certain regard to give you the ability to go in and make the offer that's going to be competitive. Because if you just look at it as like, it's just numbers and you're looking at it just the same as everybody else, there's always probably going to be somebody that's a little bit more desperate than you are that's willing to pay too much. You can still be conservative. You can still have great numbers, but you have to have an awesome plan. So thank that was a great point. Thank you for sharing. Sure. Well, I think as we kind of get to the end of this thing, this has been a great conversation. I do want to ask you, I always like to end the conversations with a little bit of gratitude and somebody's helped you along the way, you know, kind of going back to your first deal where people invested in you and because you didn't have a track record, but I want to give you an opportunity to give somebody a shout out that probably gave you that leg up that maybe you didn't deserve and do it publicly. Sure. So my, my mentor, who I like to think is a competitor, but he's, he's certainly a level ahead of us in terms of deals that he's putting together and just scale of developments and all the projects they're involved in. But when I did make that transition from the software space into real estate, I worked for Chris Erso, who really sort of sort of took me under his wings and I learned really much of what I know and implement today from them. So that, that'd be my That'd be my shout out that I saw them really start at that 40, a 40 unit deal. And they've since probably bought probably three, 4,000 units and developed another thousand units across the Southeast. So that's who I'm always pointing to and just trying to emulate any way we can. Well, Chris, I hope you're listening out there. Great shout out. And I guess lastly, how can the audience get in touch with you? The best way to reach out to me is through, through my website, dxeproperties.com. You can schedule time on my calendar. I'm happy to chat from any perspective, whether it's someone starting off, someone that's an LP, or someone that just wants to talk market anyway, especially these days, happy to just share and bounce thoughts off of one another. But thank you again. Yeah, thank you so much for being on the show. I really enjoyed this conversation. Likewise. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode, and I'd actually love for you to contribute to a future episode. If you have a question you'd like answered or a topic or a guest to bring on the show, please email me at jake at thelimitedpartner.com. Now I realize there's a lot of lingo that's thrown around on these shows, so I've created a cheat sheet for you with the top 26 terms that come up most often. Head on over to thelimitedpartner.com forward slash lingo for the list. Enjoy, and we'll see you next time.